together. Our psalm for the day is taken from Psalm 23. And um, whichever way that you can best experience this, whether it's to stay standing or seated, whatever way you can feel like you can really connect with this, let's do that together today. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. You serve me a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. You receive my drooping head, my cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. self-situated so that you can look into the eyes of your friends or family as we receive this communion meal together. I just invite you to get into any position that feels comfortable, that feels right for you. There's no forcing, but just ways that we can really feel like we are together. We're with one another in this moment. 
And before we begin to receive communion, can we just for a few moments, let's breathe in the silence. I don't know how busy your past week was, but I can imagine there was a lot happening. And so this, this first day of this new week, let's just rest from our working. Let's rest from the stress of the past seven days. And let's receive the joy and the love of God. Let's take a few moments in the silence. And today we're going to respond by saying, Jesus, we remember you. So can we say that together? Jesus, we remember you. So I just invite you to take uh, these cups and let's remove that top part so we can all feel like we're making crinkly noises together. And so (laughs) we don't feel embarrassed or like we need to do it slowly or fast or anything. We're just all doing it together. And let's just remove the bread out of there. And uh, get ready to receive this meal together. We were in a meeting a couple weeks ago, and I mentioned the fact that um, receiving communion and the sacraments, even as uh, Pastor Scott taught last week, to me growing up in a uh, very uh, high church liturgy kind of a thing, we had our first communion. And I remember the thing that was important to me about that was it felt like I was doing something that my parents did and their parents did and their parents did all the way back to Jesus. And so in that way to me and in that way to us here today, even if we're not receiving a big everybody gets together and dresses up first communion, we're receiving this meal together like those that came before us did. We're receiving this first communion together like those who we've learned from did. And we're receiving this communion together like those who made mistakes before did, like we will. But knowing that God is with us and how Jesus loves us so very much. And we're reminded even in the way that the reading out of 1 Corinthians, here is Paul talking about it. And Paul wasn't there uh, at that last supper with Jesus and the 12 disciples But Jesus is receiving this communion meal and teaching us to do it like those before him had. So Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so just hold that bread and look at it and imagine those that you've loved. Imagine parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. And if maybe family hasn't taken it before, imagine the person that first invited you to church and the way that they've received communion and feel the beauty of that worshipful moment and the way that we will receive it as well. So, Jesus, today we take this bread in remembrance of you. And together we say, Jesus, we remember you. Let's take the bread together.
And in the same way, Paul tells us that after supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. And whenever you drink it with your friends, with your family, with those that you've just met, with those that need Jesus, that need the power of the Holy Spirit, that need relationship with the love of God, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's take a look at that cup, the juice in it. Imagining all the generations before us that have loved God, that have tried to serve God, that have tried to know God, that have been transformed. And let's receive it in the same way, saying, Jesus, we remember you. Jesus, we remember you. Let's take the cup together. Good morning. <laughs> I could project, but I, I don't want to. So, <laughs> um, if you're um, visiting us today, we're so glad that you're here, and we would love a chance to connect with you. If you're online and you would like to connect with us, we have a way for you to do both. Just go to ccmonline.org new, or you can um, scan the QR code, and we would love to connect with you. And um, just good to meet you, and we have some lovely things to send home with you about the church, so um, we have wonderful Kathleen, pastor of connections over at Next Steps Kiosk. She'd love to meet you after service today. And if you have any information that you want about um, what I'm going to talk about or any questions about the church, she's a great person to talk to as well. We have two opportunities to tell you about today. One is an opportunity to be served and one is an opportunity to serve. Um, the first is um, I am offering a self-care Saturday for women on November 12th. And we only have a couple seats left. Um, so if you would like to sign up for that, two hours of peaceful, nourishing activities to care for your soul and your body. Um, I do have a wait list set up. So if you sign up and it's already full, um, add yourself to the wait list in case we have a cancellation so I can get you in. Um, and the opportunity to serve is up with our CR kids. Um, we are really short-staffed right now, and we've got more and more families coming back to the church. And so we need some extra staff up there to help care for our, our kids in loving and caring ways. Um, if you want to do that, you can let me know or you can let um, Pastor Sarah know. And we have a couple ways you can serve. Our typical Sunday program is running right now, but we're getting ready for Christmas camp, which it starts Thanksgiving weekend. And it's four weeks of just having fun with the kids. We do a bunch of special Christmas activities. So if you want something that's just really kind of social, have fun with the kids and hang with them, you might want to try out Christmas camp. We really need some staff for that. And, um, and then if you want to be part of the regular program, you can let us know too. And we work around your schedule. It's super fun. I love it. It's a great way to um, pour into the next generation. So if you want to be part of the team, let us know. And right now we're going to prepare to receive our offering. And so if you'd like to give today, uh, you can give online or in the baskets up front. And um, I'm going to pray for our offering. And then after that, we'll release our kiddos to go upstairs. So, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to be together today. And just to receive from you and to um, give to each other and to give to you. We just pray a special blessing on this offering to everyone who is giving and um, all the ways that we're able to give to others through this offering. And we pray um, your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning.
morning. I am going to do a Pastor Claire thing, and I'm going to invite somebody to the stage who's not expecting it. Uh, Doug, would you mind joining us? We have some texts here uh, on, in, on uh, these papers that isn't handed out to you. And if, um, if you'd like to read along, Doug, you'll need that, I think, the, the text for Isaiah. I would, I'd like for you to read that, that passage for us, if you would, please. Do we have that here? I actually don't know where my Bible is at the moment. <laughs> Thank you. Could also someone... Yeah, that's fine. I'll just leave that here. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> this is just a glimpse of my daily life with him. Where's my Bible? Have you seen my Bible? Have you seen my wallet? To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash your hands. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red, though they are red as like crimson, they shall be as wool. Thank you, Doug. And let's read together the gospel reading for this morning, Luke 19, 1 through 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your insight. We need your loveliness, and we need you to make us lovely as you are lovely. And we 
ask that you would speak to us through your text. You would speak to us by your spirit in the words that we hear in the next little while together. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. When we think of Zacchaeus climbing the sycamore, perhaps we can see this symbolically as us coming to worship Jesus, getting a vantage point to see him and be seen by him. But of course, Zacchaeus doesn't know what's in store for him when he wants to see Jesus and wants Jesus to see him. He has no idea how radically different his life and his world must become. Why does Zacchaeus climb the sycamore? Why do we, if this is a symbol of our worship, why do we do this? What is this desire for God we express in our worship? From wherever it comes and to wherever wherever it is leading us, it is at the heart of what we mean when we talk about worship. Today it's my task to talk about journeying with worship. And I've subtitled my message today as instead of a show. So it's journeying with worship instead of a show as I'm borrowing a lyric from the songwriter and artist John Foreman. It's a little different today. It's intentional. My aim today is to consider how these two texts given to us in the lectionary readings for today speak both to each other and to us, and how Jesus, of course, is speaking to us through them. It is God who is speaking in the Isaiah passage that Doug read, and he is saying, your sacred meetings, your your festivals, your feasts, in other words, your worship gatherings. I'm weary of them. You lift your hands in worship, but they're full of blood because you don't defend the fatherless and the widow. You don't seek justice and goodness in your communities. Your worship services are more show than substance, and I can hardly stomach it. How in the world might we hear this as the Lord's word for us today? In a show, at least when the art is poor, nothing happens. Nothing actually happens. We see emoting, but we don't see emotion. We see acting, but we don't see and witness action. Because when the show is over, nothing has actually happened. I want to kind of make that, that linguistic distinction. Emoting, not emotion. Acting, not action. Often when I'm watching a a movie or a program with my kids, there'll be some kind of a scene that's disturbing, uh, emotionally challenging for them. And my wife and I will notice that they're struggling and they'll often look to us as, what what do we do with what we've just seen? And it's not, (laughs) don't get us wrong, we're not watching R-rated programming with our kids. I mean, this is like, you know, Disney does this, right? You know, a gorilla father is defending his pack from aggressive tigers or uh, a a doe is prancing through the forest and is shot by a hunter. Ding, ding, ring a bell. Uh, a, a lion father is betrayed by his brother and he's trampled by a stampede of wildebeests. Dies alone in a gorge. My kids are like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know. And often we pause the show and we care for them and we listen to them and then we say something like, it's just a show. And in other words, what we mean is it's not real. It's not real. That, that sorrow that you see, that actor 
emoting. They're not really sorrowful. It's okay. And that injury that you see, it's not really injurious. It's it's okay. It's not real. It's just a show. But another way we often mean a show is when when what is taking place brings us to become stupefied. And as such, our senses are dulled beyond seeing the truth of what's really going on. It's another meaning we have for the, the word show. It's when something is so engaging, something is so dazzling that we can't actually see what's happening. There's a show being put on for us. We speak of a magic show in this way. We're entertained and distracted enough not to see the trap door in the floor, right? Not to see the sleight of hand. And so the illusion has its sway upon us. I want to look at an image that appeared in the Illustrated London News on December 5th of 1863. And the, the title of this is uh, Divine Worship, Family Worship on, on a Plantation in South Carolina. We have that image for folks? There we are. I don't know how much you can see here. But as you take a look at that image, listen to the caption that read along with this in this newspaper. I want to read it to you. I have it here. Here it is. It said, The owner of a cotton plantation, South Carolina, is with his wife and children engaged in divine worship, surrounded by his slaves. In a state of almost patriarchal simplicity, in the character of the Negro as developed in the slave states of America, the two most marked features are his capacity for strong attachment and fidelity to his master when kindly treated and his susceptibility to religious influences. I, I wonder if you can see here that there's a kind of show happening, a, a kind of sleight of hand. Because this appeared actually in the in a Billy Graham uh, house of some kind, and, 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 and to some extent was received as a kind of pleasant image. Look, even in spite of slavery, people were worshiping Jesus together. Even in the midst of being slave and master, Jesus was Lord. I want to read to you what Willie Jennings, who is a uh, a black theologian, probably one of the most important theological voices in America today. And I want to read to you him reflecting on this image. He says... What the writer and illustrator saw in this scene was not what I saw, and certainly not what I felt. I felt these slaves. I felt the absurdity of this event as though it, were an, as though it was an absurdity I shared in. One can see the absolute exhaustion of these slaves sitting in worship at and within reach, just beyond the plantation and present in the sounds of battles they certainly could hear. Even if this state of patriarchal simplicity was staged, the faces of the slaves spoke the real. They were inside a building that spoke death, not simply the small chapel building of this plantation worship, but also this constrained slaveholding worship itself. And not only this, but also the form of Christianity that made it possible. I can see in their faces the horror of it all. One young man buries his head in his hand. Another person stares at the preacher as if in mourning. And not one black woman in the illustration looks impressed by this event. (laughs) 
This is not boredom, because even boredom shows life. This is something else, a slow death and a slave obedience. None of my musings can be verified, but I hold them to be true. Why or how this image found its way into the Billy Graham Center archives at Wheaton is a mystery. I can imagine an eye formed to see this as a pleasurable and even hopeful image. A plantation at worship, master and mistress with their extended family in worship of God. Yet the horror and the absurdity of this image are bound up in the order of it. This is an institution, church as institution, slavery as institution, white supremacy as institution, all woven together. But my deepest torment at looking at this image radiates from the preacher in the pulpit. I would like to think that this preacher was engaged what Henry Louis Gates famously articulated as signifying. That is a slave who spoke words that would be approved by the master and slave-holding society, but would also be understood by slaves as coded words that camouflaged rebellion, revolution, and plans for escape. I dream that his gospel eloquence belied a seething hatred of the institution of slavery and a desire to destroy the very arrangement within which he stood. But the faces of the slaves don't suggest such a linguistic stratagem. Instead, I imagine that this slave preacher is an enslaved preacher, Proclaiming a gospel useful to this institution, church, slavery, whiteness. Bringing some really light stuff this morning, am I? <laughs> Easy listening radio right now, you know. You can hear the, the saxophone just playing smooth, Kenny G. Sorry, many of you who are in my Wednesday night class know that that's not my style. How can this master not hear the voice of Jesus saying, you can see him sitting there. He, he almost seems right in the center of the room as if there's not a single slave there who can see beyond him. How does he not hear Jesus saying, I must come to your house today? Why does he not stand and exclaim, look, Lord, if I have wronged anyone here. Let me pay them back four times over. What's dangerous, though, for us is to imagine that we desire, that we in our desires for God could never be blind to the disorders in our order. That somehow they were blind to the way their desires for God were bent and were not. We imagine that our desire for God is self-evident, self-determining, and self-sufficient. For perhaps some of us, what we would call worship is a gathering on a Sunday morning, singing the songs that make us feel good about coming that morning, and hoping those positive feelings would help us feel comfortable the rest of the week. And if we were honest, we'd admit that sometimes we believed that God would owe us that much for our devotion. Most of us are tempted to think we're serving God in our worship, scratching an itch for him, in hopes that when we need God, he'll come through. Which is why when disaster hits our life, our first thought is often, God, I was serving you. I've been worshiping you faithfully. Never realizing that what I'm admitting when I've said this is that I've done all of it thinking that it'll mean God will show up when I need him. Thinking God will improve the quality of my experience and guard the comforts of my life. We've imagined somehow we could leverage our devotion to God to obtain for us the ease 
with which we'd like to live. But this is not what's at heart in Isaiah's words. Doug read them earlier. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke oppressors. Defend the defenseless and plead for widows. Doing justice in a world of injustice is not a comfortable life. This is what Jesus knows as the son of man who has no place to lay his head. Think about that. Why does Jesus have no place to lay his head? It is because this world is ordered in such a way that the son of man cannot rest his head. There is no place for him. Ask Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa or ask Zacchaeus who desires to worship Jesus and so he gives half his wealth to the poor for whom God is always and surveys the wrongs he has done to his neighbors, surveys the relationships that he's broken, the friends he's betrayed, the family he's ostracized and makes it right. Zacchaeus realizes in his encounter with Jesus that all his desire to see Jesus and to please Jesus means nothing if it doesn't lead to right action, to embracing the hard work of justice, and it's this which Jesus declares as salvation. Think about that. What have we often talked about salvation as? It's coming into a church and saying a sinner's prayer and feeling good, feeling peace, at how your life is and going on. This is not what Jesus says. He declares it's salvation that has come to Zacchaeus' house. Not by a sinner's prayer, not by a raised hallelujah, repentant, loving, right-wising action. How else would anyone know that we love mercy and walk humbly in our desire to be with God, but that we also act justly to our neighbors? I wonder if we find our desire for Jesus to be so self-evident. Of course, Zacchaeus climbs the tree. It's Jesus after all. But Isaiah tells us he had no form or beauty that we should look to him or desire him. No beauty that we should look to him or desire him. And yet still, somehow the Psalms teach us to sing of God's beauty. What does this mean? I think that it means that for those of us that believe the truth about God is this particularly scandalous Palestinian peasant, that the beauty of God is quite strange. If we let ourselves admit it, God's strangeness is a beauty we would not make if we could, and we can. It's in fact God's beauty. It's unfathomable for us and not a becoming standard by all our current measures. Scroll through Instagram and you'll see. (laughs) Of course, we are God's creatures. And in a sense, we desire him naturally. And it is good. It is for our good. As Augustine tells us, he is our homeland. But St. Paul reminds us that his wisdom is foolishness to us. His power seems like weakness to us. And just what if we are so caught up in untruth and fear and all the wrongs that have been done to us that we actually do not find him desirable? But instead, what we find desirable are our ideas about him. More traditionally, we might say, what if sin keeps us from bringing ourselves to love God 
as God is and loving our neighbors as ourselves. The truth is we cannot love God in the beauty of his holiness except by God's work in our lives to make us the kind of people who can. And in beholding his loveliness, he makes us lovely, sharing his own life and his own loveliness with us. For Zacchaeus and for us, this will mean that worship makes a demand upon us. I kind of want to muse here. So much of white Christian space is about making the, the template pure enough that no demands are made upon us. But in so many other Christian worship, so many other cultures and their worship, the demand is so pressing that it's hard sometimes for us in whiteness to find a home in that space because we can feel the pressing of the gospel upon us and we're not used to it. So there's my musing. You don't have to pay me for it. Jesus claims us. And that is a claim that is for us and for our good. Yes and amen, without a doubt. But it is also always a claim upon our relating with our world and our neighbors. Salvation is not sentimental. It is concrete. Our brother James tells us that pure and undefiled life of worship is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And he goes on and tells us that our faith is dead. If we say to our neighbors, go in peace, stay warm and well fed, but we do not provide for their needs. What good is it, he asks us. Yes, it is good that we pause in worship to behold God and to desire God. There's nothing wrong that when we sing our songs that we find ourselves desiring God. But we are too easily deceived by our desires. This is one of the many lessons of the Enneagram, in fact, that our motivations and our desires can be bent against us. And there's work to do. The Gospels teach us that many who crowded around Jesus were susceptible to this truth. Even those closest to him were drawn to him by false hope and vain expectations. It's a hard truth. But for most of us, our desires are not corrupt. They're not corrupted just as much as they really are kind of bent. And so I want to read this excerpt from my professor and friend, Chris Green. He says, we delight in the justice of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means grief for our enemies. We delight in the mercy of God, but at least in part because we imagine it frees us from responsibility to work for justice in the world. We delight in the power of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means we're protected from the suffering others have to face. We delight in the truth of God, but at least in part because we take pride in being right and we want to be seen as knowledgeable and wise. We delight in the law of God, but at least in part because we imagine it provides a moral framework that allows us to sort neatly right from wrong, order from disorder, good folks from bad folks. We delight in the calling of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means we can find success in ministry and make a name for ourselves. We delight in the presence and the work of God in our lives, but at least in part because we like how that experience leaves us feeling, and we want to advance quickly into the depths and heights of our faith, 
We are always, until the end, living at the risk of these deceptions and countless others like them. But we do not need to panic or despair. If we desire what is good in ways that are not good, we can rest assured that God will gracefully disappoint us. If we find delightful in God, if what we find delightful in God is in fact an illusion, God has promised to go on revealing his true beauty until we find that beauty truly desirable. Because Jesus is lovely in himself, he can make us lovely and loving to each other. It is Jesus who tells us that our neighbors will know who we that will know we are his not by our praise not our anthems, not our worship conferences, not our motion videos or our stomping and our shouting, but by how we love each other in action, personal, communal, social, political, economic, etc., etc., etc. It is all his. It belongs to him because he wants to give us every good thing. And so I'll just conclude with a song. You can turn this mic off, please. That would be great. show and pretense hypocrisy of your praise hypocrisy of your festivals I hate all your show away with your noisy worship away with your noisy hymns I stop up my ears when you're singing them all your show instead let there be a flood of justice and endless procession of righteous living living instead let there be a flood of justice instead of a show your eyes when you pray sing right along with the band you shine your shoes for your services there's blood on your hands you turn your back on the homeless well the ones who don't fit in your plan quit playing There's blood on your hands Instead let there be a flood of justice An 
When you invite a prophet to speak on a Sunday morning, you take a breath and you say, Holy Spirit, what are you and I going to do about this? So I'm going to invite you to stand with us. If justice could roll down, if we could do justice, love mercy, walk humbly into this week, what might happen where you eat and sleep and work and play? What might happen if that image follows us wherever we go? If we look at our hands and we say, God, would you clean my hands? And then bring my hands. Could you just take a moment and bring your gaze inward? to where the Holy Spirit lives and moves and has being in you. And just pay attention to what the Holy Spirit in you 
what you need to talk about this week. What is it that keeps you from being able to put your head down and rest? What keeps you up? And if nothing is keeping you up these days, and you're finding it easy to rest your head, Ask the Holy Spirit, what would you like me to pay attention to? To bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Keep me up, Holy Spirit. until I find the way to walk with you all along this journey. I want Jesus to walk with me. I want Jesus to walk with me all Holy Spirit, walk with us. Disturb us in our comfort. And bring us where we need to be. And may the peace of God lead you into places you never thought you'd go. Bless you, friends. Mm-hmm.